Hi there. And just before we get started, I wanted to ask a small favour. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please could you go along to wherever you get your 10 by 9 podcast and give us a review and maybe a rating, please. It helps to get us noticed and drive up our numbers. That's it. Thank you. Now on with the stories. Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Padraig Otuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and we have a fantastic mix of stories for you on this week's podcast, The Devil's Candy. We spent the remainder of the afternoon jumping into the river, mucking about. But our Nick is a cute hare. <laughs> and he was to catch me on a words one Monday morning, a few weeks after I received the sacraments. I pined. We were great friends. He demurred. Did I mention that he is actually the great unrequited love of my life? Okay, let's get on with the first of our stories. Fergal McGuckin told it at a recent event in our Belfast home at the Black Box when the theme was friend. Just a few cultural references. Fergal mentions a street game which he calls Curbsy. Now, that proved controversial because every town, in fact, every neighbourhood, calls it by a slightly different variant. So one member of the audience was outraged, declaring to everyone that it's Cribby. They're both wrong, of course. As in Derry, we called it Kirby, which makes perfect sense as the point of the game is to hit the curb opposite where your opponent is standing, hitting at the exact angle so that the ball bounces right back into your hands. Glad we've cleared that up. So here's Fergal, who felt his story lacked some of the profundity of the story that came before him that evening. I couldn't possibly comment, but there's probably an F-bomb or two in there. Sorry, I'd like to apologise in advance. That was a wonderfully profound story, and I'm just going to lower and cheapen the tone (laughs) considerably. So bear, bear with me. My, my story is called With Friends Like These, which will become a- apparent as we go through. Nowadays, I like to think of myself as a, a good and loyal friend. Unlike my, when, in my teenage years, when I was typically too self-centered and self-conscious, but then so were most of my friends at the time, so I guess that was pretty normal. There are quite a number of friendships from my childhood that have not been sustained into adulthood, which is also not entirely unusual. People move away, or life journeys diverge and meander, and what is left is a bunch of largely rose-tinted, but mostly happy memories of a misspent youth. Like those long summer holidays when we got up to all sorts. One such summer, back in the foggy mists of the mid-1980s, was spent almost entirely outdoors as the weather remained uncharacteristically glorious for the best part of our school holidays. Our time was largely spent on fairly typical and mostly innocent pursuits. The endless footy matches with the obligatory jumpers for goalposts. Games of curbsies, at least that's what they called it where I'm from. (laughs) Or doing BMX stunts and jumps thinking we were Eddie Kid, usually over three prostrate victims probably younger siblings as they were considered expendable, and getting a chase of on, off bigger lads, or themins, or messing about at a local river. However, despite this romantic, Huckleberry Finn-esque imagery, my friends and I had by this stage also discovered smoking and alcohol, not to mention girls, and we were in that mid-teen frantic race to be grown up before our time, 
In fact, if I'm going to draw on literary comparisons, we were probably more Lord of the Flies than Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Which reminds me of one particular misadventure when four of my friends and I decided to take advantage of the favourable weather and embark on an epic riverside camping trip. Now, what I really mean is we cycled about three miles outside of Cookstown, where we lived, to the Tuller River. We had borrowed, begged, or stolen what camping equipment we could, along with Jamesy's family tent, which was one of his dad's prized possessions. Just hold that thought. It was an expensive six-berth yoke with a substantial entrance porch, <laughs> more than adequate for our needs. Of course, we would also need supplies. And by supplies, I mean sausages, fags, and beer. We hadn't quite worked out the transport logistics. However, and we, fairly, we made fairly slow progress out the Tuller Road on our BMX bikes, weighed down with our six-man tent and rucksacks full of cheap stagger lager. Other brands of watery cat's urine are available. We arrived at what appeared to be the perfect spot, just beyond a picturesque, humpbacked bridge on a bend in the narrow country road. Or, to be more precise, we arrived at the point when Jamesy said, Right, I'm not carrying this fucking massive tent any further. <laughs> so we found a nice spot in a clearing amongst a copse of trees near the riverbank. We checked to make sure there were no farm animals in the immediate vicinity. I mean, we're not stupid, right? <laughs> then we went for the next two hours trying to erect the apparently idiot-proof tent. It was only when it was fully erected that I identified one relatively minor glitch. On entering the sleeping quarters, I realized that there was a considerable pile of cow dung right underneath our canvas floor. It made a disgusting squelchy noise when I sat on it, and the smell emitted would not have been very conducive to a good night's sleep, to be honest. So the tent was moved. Another hour or so later, and we were finally in. Jamesy, of course, was now worried that his dad would detect the lingering smell of the cow pat. <laughs> we reassured him that it would wash off easily and the tent would be returned as we found it in pristine condition. Don't worry about it, big lad. I'm sure we genuinely believed this to be the case at the time. Little did poor Jamesy know, but a slight whiff of cow shite would, be, would prove to be the least of his worries. <laughs> We spent the remainder of the afternoon jumping into the river, mucking about, and getting sunburnt. It was glorious. Men were dispatched to gather wood for the planned campfire. Our cooking grill was prepared. Our grill being one end of a shopping trolley we'd found earlier that week. <laughs> oh yes, Bear Grills has nothing on us. We fashioned a circle of tree stumps for seats around our fire and started on the cheap lager. What a legendary night this was going to be. A number of lessons were learned that evening. One, copious amounts of cheap lager consumed quickly by teenagers can lead to sporadic bouts of projectile vomiting, <laughs> some of which gets spread onto the side of the tent. <laughs> Needless to say, Jamesy wasn't too happy. Two, Copious amounts of cheap lager combined with smoking numerous fags will inevitably lead to even more episodes of projectile vomiting. Three, 
copious amounts of cheap lager and the figs, plus half-cooked sausages burnt on the outside and raw on the inside, will also contribute significantly to the said projectile vomiting. Four. Just as importantly, we learned not to construct a campfire too close to a tent. The consequences of this error of judgment weren't immediately obvious. It wasn't until the morning after that we discovered the numerous little scorch marks and burn holes all along the side of the tent due to the flying sparks being generated. Oops. <laughs> Jamesy now began to wear the resigned look of the condemned man. Five. Furthermore, if we are illegally camping on someone's farmland, it is perhaps not the best idea to draw attention to ourselves. Either by lighting a campfire that some 11th night bonfire builders would be proud of, or by filling the air with our loud and profane teenage utterances. Yes, there were two types of bullshit to, go, to look out for in this particular field. Luckily, the batteries ran out in the ghetto blaster early in the evening, thus protecting any nearby livestock or wildlife from further distress. Unbeknownst to us, however, the local farmer had become aware of our presence and would be making a courtesy call the following morning. Six. Finally, the porch area, the elaborate entrance porch of the family-sized tent, does not double up as a toilet, apparently. Especially when the occupants are storing their clothing and shoes there. Someone, and it's never been identified who, <laughs> got up in the early hours of the morning in a drunken stupor and urinated in the said porch area. Unfortunately for James A., his clothing and shoes bore the brunt of the deluge. I think it's fair to say, Jamesy was not having the best of trips. <laughs> we hadn't intended to be up so early the next morning, but we found that there's no escape from the early morning sun in the tent. With groggy, sore heads, and yet more vomiting in evidence, it was decided that the best cure for our hangovers would be to launch ourselves back into the river. Even Jamesy, by now physically sick, not, not from the lager, but physically sick with the tent-induced worry, and by now stinking of pee, got into the spirit of it. For a few blissful moments, he forgot about the tent, as he'd launched himself off a rock and frolicked about in the water. If truth be told, he got a wee bit carried away and began to show off in that classic teenage boy kind of way. While standing on a rock, he pulled his shorts down, bending over to dive in, and he playfully drummed, on his arse cheeks as he dived into the water. More hilariously, though, he hadn't noticed that his shorts were now floating downstream. <laughs> now, this wouldn't necessarily have been disastrous for him were it not for the fact that the farmer chose precisely that moment <laughs> to announce his arrival with several prolonged and aggressive beeps of his Land Rover horn. As he rapidly approached from the far end of the field, the group of friends did what any group of teenage friends would do in these situations. 
We grabbed what we could of our stuff and we buggered off. <laughs> leaving the hapless Jamesy stranded. <laughs> Such was our fear of a possibly gun-toting farmer. We never looked behind us until we reached the relative urban safety of the town. And what about Jamesy? What about Jamesy? <laughs> well, he emerged from the river. Buck naked, obviously. He emerged from the river and quickly decided to abandon the whole ridden scorched dung, pee and vomit stained tent. It was a lost cause, he reckoned. No shit, Jamesy. Uh, with only a matter of seconds before the farmer would be on top of him, he decided to grab his bag of pishy clothes on his bike and flee as fast as his legs would carry him. The only problem was one of the other lads had inadvertently lifted his stuff along with their own. All that was left was a small towel that would barely fit around his waist. So he whizzed past the flailing farmer on his BMX, leaving the poor man with the final unedifying image of his exposed flexing butt cheeks, pedaling furiously for all they were worth into the distance. He claims he had to take a more circuitous cross-country route home, continually afraid that the enraged farmer would catch up with him, only stopping to retrieve the towel which continually came loose and fell to the ground intermittently. Now, the moral of this story, if there is one, is do not rely on your friends to help you in the depths of a crisis especially if those friends are vacuous, self-absorbed teenage boys. I mean, with friends like Jamesy's, who needs enemies? Thank you so much, Fergal. Teenage kicks are hard to beat. And if you have a story for 10 by 9 then get in touch through the submission page on our website, which is 10by9.com. We are always, always, always looking for storytellers. Now I had a quick dive into the archives for our next story, and it's a gem. It was told in August 2019 as part of the West Belfast Festival. Here's the brilliant Anya McParland. So in St Vincent's um, in the early 60s, preparation for First Communion was, it was all we really did in P3. <laughs> Sister Louise rigorously drummed the catechism in us and made explicit the theology of sin. Wide-eyed we listened to the mantra about original sin, venial sin, mortal sin and sacrilege. And we visualised our souls, small clouds, pure white in the state of grace, modelled with venial sins, deadly black with a mortal one and off the scale with a sacrilege. <laughs> we were left under no illusion about the devastating effects of a bad confession. <laughs> Withholding a mortal sin... Withholding a mortal sin in the confessional not only results in your other sins remaining, but you come out with an additional one. And you've made a bad confession and you'll be damned for eternity. We pictured ourselves in the flames of hell for the terrifying sentence of eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever, the nuns told us, as we shuddered and vowed privately to remain forever in the state of grace. Even purgatory the stark wilderness where we would wander aimlessly forever should we die with venial sins on our souls was a her horrific prospect. An impressionable eight-year-old, I remember vowing inwardly 
Never again did my sisters sneak a penny chew out of the change from a ma's ten plowers or claim I'd washed my face when I hadn't. <laughs> and you can see the terror of infinity <laughs> etched on my eight-year-old face on the day of my first communion. But our Nick is a cute her, and he was to catch me on a words one Monday morning, a few weeks after I received the sacraments. Now, there was a Swedish shop at the top of the New Street, and Mrs Russell sold candy, a sticky, gooey, homemade confection that she produced from her kitchen in flat trays, shattered with a wee hammer thing, and then weighed out in bags of different sizes, a penny worth, tuppence worth, threepence worth, etc. And I would say she alone was responsible for the millionaire status of the Falls Road dentist, Maria. You, you would agree with me there. <laughs> A penny worth of candy was instant and long-lasting gratification. A lump of this stuff wedged between decaying molars would endure at least half an hour if sucked, not chewed. As it slowly melted in the warmth of your gob, wave after wave of smoky sweet saliva comforted and soothed you through interminable dull afternoons of times tables and mental arithmetic. We had all developed the skill of tonguing it into the furthest recesses of our mouths so that the organs of articulation could function when the need arose. <laughs> anyway, that fateful Monday morning, a wee girl in my class called Kathleen dropped her money. A bunch of pennies to cover her lunch, the black and white babies and her swimmer's fee. I was helping Kathleen pick them up when I next saw an opening and got me to slyly pocket one before handing over the rest. I fingered the bad coin all morning, and by lunchtime I was literally salivating at the thought of the afternoon's prolonged mastication. <laughs> to this day, the sickly aftertaste of burnt butter and sugar is redolent to me of guilt and fear. My conscience, the fittest it has ever been, started to prickle and fret as soon as the last morsel had melted away. I had broken the seventh commandment. It was a venial sin, I told myself, but it had to be confessed and absolved. Reparation had to be made as soon as possible. I had to give Kathleen back a penny before my soul could be fully restored to its pristine state. I would go to confession on Saturday. I would keep a penny out of the sixpence pocket money I got every weekend and somehow slip it into Kathleen's pocket on the Monday morning. I would have received absolution, reparation would have been made, and I'd be able to get on with my life. Until then, I would take extra car crossing roads, and <laughs> I would say an act of contrition every hour. God would know I meant well, but I didn't want to take any risks. I knew it wasn't bad enough for hell, but I sure didn't like the sound of that purgatory place. Saturday came and my sister Elish was in the confession box. I was kneeling next in line, head in hands, pretending to examine my conscience. <laughs> Beside Mida, who was surreptitiously reading the Irish news inside the sofa. Elish's <laughs> voice was loud and sanctimonious. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It is two weeks from my last confession, and these are my sins. I was disobedient twice, I lost my temper once, and I nipped my sister twice. <laughs> At this final revelation, Madame nudged me, smiled, nodded towards the confession box and winked conspiratorially. Dear Jesus, I inwardly beseeched, turning my face away from him towards St Joseph's side altar, please make him go outside for a smoke. 
the thought of my dad overhearing that his second daughter was a thief, <laughs> a calling in life vociferously abhorred and despised by my dad, was enough to make me almost expire of shame. Ailish emerged, hands joined in a smug state of grace. She genuflected theatrically and knelt with head and hands at the side altar to say her penance. I skulked into the box and sat praying for wisdom, piety and fortitude as the priest dealt with the young sinner on the other side. As he turned towards me and the grill unlocked, I stole a look through a crack in the door and I saw Madas still sitting there and now completely openly reading the paper and I lost my nerve. I made more or less the same confession as Ariellish, but unlike her, I came out unshriven. I had made a bad confession. I inwardly bowed to say six Hail Marys instead of the three the priest gave me. <laughs> and I'd throw in a couple of acts of contrition, but God was no mug. He knew, and I was sick to my soul. My dad's comment when we got into the car was unhelpful. Girls, now that your pots are well scarred, do you fancy an ice cream and a wee swing in the park? I did not. All I wanted was to lie in a darkened room reciting decades of the rosary. (laughs) The word that snailed through my consciousness all through that weekend was sacrilege. I had made a bad confession and I took communion the next morning. My mother would not hear tell of me not going up and I agonised over the swallowing of that host, knowing full well that I was not in the state of grace necessary to receive it And that word, sacrilege, whispered menacingly by teachers, nuns and priests, began to gnaw at the core of my being. Sudden death in the state of sacrilege meant eternal damnation. It meant burning in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The concept of infinity terrified me at the best of times, even when I was sure of getting into heaven. But the thought of roasting forever in that pit, tumbling with those horned, fork-tailed demons forever in the flames of damnation scarred the shit out of me (laughs) on that ill-fated Sunday night. I lay rigid on my back with eyes wide open thinking about forever and fell into a fitful sleep with dreams of (laughs) 33.3333333 stretching to infinity and infested with cackling red devils like the ones in my catechism. The situation needed to be tackled immediately. On the Monday morning at school, I asked if anybody wanted a penny. They all did, so I gave one to a bewildered Kathleen. (laughs) I felt a little better after that. At lunchtime, instead of playing skips in the schoolyard, I made my way up Clonic Gardens to the monastery. With fingers swollen and sweating in entwined plastic rosary beads, I joined a couple of old crones and a wee nun who were kneeling, whistling sibilants outside a confession box. My turn came quickly, and with a determination based on holy terror, I went in. I told the priest that I'd made a bad confession and committed a sacrilege. He was very interested. (laughs) I had his complete attention. I blurted out the whole saga, the temptation by the devil, the candy, the bad confession, communion in a state of disgrace. He leaned his ear against the grill and he listened and sighed. He was pleased reparation had been made in the form of the returned penny, and he absolved me. As I kneeled there, I sh- <laughs> eyes shut tight and hands joined in supplication, soaking in his magic Latin incantations. I felt goodness flow through my veins 
and I was Lucia Santos of Fatima. <laughs> Bernadette of Lourdes and Maria, Maria Goretti all in one. I emerged incandescent with goodness. After a penance of one Our Father, three Hail Marys, and a memorari thrown in by me as a gesture of goodwill, <laughs> I danced and skipped my way back down to St Vincent's, where I put all my efforts into the afternoon's mental arithmetic session, glad to have a pure, innocent, and blessedly empty mouth, free from the malevolent seduction of the devil's candy. The joys of the Catholic upbringing. Yes, indeed, the Irish Catholic childhood, bringing guilt and terror to young people for decades, but great raw material for stories. Anya, that was brilliant. I hope we'll see you back at the black box 10 by 9 microphone before too long. Don't forget, if you can, give us a rating or even a nice review at the place where you get your podcast. It'll only take you a minute. We'd love you forever. Thank you. On to our third story now, and it comes from our Zoom days, May 2021 to be precise, when the theme was sexy. Here's Cathy Ayers. It was just after my 12th birthday that I first saw him. I can't remember now quite where or what the occasion was. What I am sure of is that it was near the end of the school year, a time for those usual school concerts with groups of students playing badly, more often than not, in school canteens. I had started playing flute the year before in fifth grade and was best friends with a girl who played clarinet. She was much more serious about this than I was and actually practiced. Spring concert time was definitely the season of parents sitting in uncomfortable chairs in unair conditioned rooms, clapping with various degrees of enthusiasm. And maybe this is where I saw him. It was also the time of my final year of elementary school. In the autumn, I would be moving into the local junior high, a building that had been built during the depression. There was definitely a tour of that school and talks about how we would move around for different classes, what kind of work we would get, and how we were all growing up. Oddly, the junior high was the only building in the district that had a proper built-for-purpose rehearsal space. So it might have been there that I caught sight of my great adolescent crush, a 13-year-old boy playing flute. That was all it took for me to decide. This boy, a year older than me, and obviously artistic, should be the first person to spark that fluttering feeling somewhere internal. Was it my stomach, my heart? I have no idea. But his name was John Cantonwine. Small framed, glasses wearing, thick hair, mocha skinned, fastidiously dressed for a rural teenage Californian boy. I just knew he was perfect. I have no idea what I did that summer. Maybe learn and mourn that my clarinet playing best friend would be moving cross country soon. I do know I started the new school year in the autumn, got a school locker and had band with all the musicians in the school. Now I got to actually talk to that crush and he was lovely, intelligent, funny, empathetic. We had similar interests and ran in the same peer group. That year I got a new best friend after the other one moved. 
I watched people pair up at school dances. All the while, I pined for the smart, artistic boy. Everyone knew how I felt. Towards the end of the school year, with maybe three weeks left in the term, the new best friend walked home with the boy and pleaded my case. We were obviously friends. There was only so much time left. He would be off to high school next year. Why didn't he just make my dreams come true and ask me to be his girlfriend for those last dwindling days? He demurred. This set the pattern for the next four years of my life. I pined, we were great friends, he demurred. Did I mention that he is actually the great unrequited love of my life? I saw him sporadically the following year as we were in different schools because the high school band had to use that rehearsal space. But soon enough, I was at high school too. And there were the two of us starting every morning, flutes out, and then walking back to high school for the rest of our classes. And every Friday night, you would find us in the stands watching the football team and playing fight songs when they scored and mocking the cheerleaders when they didn't. We were tight, John and I, belonging to the same various clubs and societies, same friend group, lots of gossip, and just occasionally a bit more of a serious conversation. Neither of us felt comfortable in our own skin. I had my first boyfriend by then, Barley, captain of the mathlete team. So maybe I didn't pine as much and definitely not as publicly. Now, John, when he turned 16, like many teenagers, was gifted a car because now he could drive. And what a car he got. It was a 1962 Cadillac DeVille, four doors, fins, and painted a light purple. It was lilac. Even today, with all its clunky old-fashioned steel, I think it may be the sexiest car I know. It definitely was the sexiest car I've ever been in. And let me tell you, you can fit a lot of teenagers in those cars. And while John was the person who would drive us all off campus to pick up food at the local shop, and then to the park to talk and set the world to rights. Sometimes I was the lucky girl who sat up front in my pick of the seats, but not always, because by then he had quite a collection of us, geeky, awkward girls who were all pining away. Christina, Beth, Anna, Denise, Mary, me. And we were only the first string. There were times when I was the favorite, and there were times when I wasn't. Eventually, we all grow up. He left town first, starting at Occidental College, during those times that a certain Barack Obama was also a college freshman. I left the following year to a big public university and discovered just how isolated and conservative my small town had been. At some point in that first year, I thought about my friend, my unrequited love, and all those girls who had loved him and who he had never been the slightest bit romantic with. And I remembered our unhappiness and our sort of otherness. And I realized that my friend was gay. Not something that you ever would have admitted as a teenager in that small town in the 1980s where people were pretty aggressive in maintaining heterosexual norms. I felt relief that it wasn't a fault of mine that made me unlovable, while also hoping that my friend could be happier and maybe find romance or something like it in the big city of Los Angeles. To be honest, we lost track of each other. 
with the flight to university away from small towns. I missed him, but it was the time before the internet and mobile phones. I graduated my big university, traveled around Europe, and settled down to wait tables in the Bay Area. When one evening I got a phone call from my mother. John was dead. His funeral was in town in a few days. Did I plan to attend? I asked my mother if she could find out how this had happened. Why a school friend, just 25, was dead. And she said she'd make a few calls. My mother has always been very well networked. I immediately told the current boy that we were making a road trip and then informed work I was taking a few days off for a funeral. My mother phoned back less than an hour later and told me she knew what the cause of death was. I recalled a conversation John and I had had one of those mornings walking back from rehearsal when all the school talk was that I had started therapy and he wanted to know the truth of the stories and expressed a wistful longing for a therapist himself. So I asked first if it was suicide and she said no. My next question was AIDS. And I think my mother was shocked that I asked that question and even more that that was the answer. My friend had gone into hospital on Boxing Day because he couldn't stop throwing up. And he only left that hospital to go into hospice to be made more comfortable to die. He was so sick by the end, he had gone blind and barely made it a month past that 25th birthday. I wept throughout the service and I still bear a grudge against the universe. If you ask, I can find a photo of this, the two of us in less than a minute. We were at the school's Sadie Hawkins dance because that's the dance where girls get to ask the boys. We were dressed in a preppy style, jumpers casually thrown over our shoulders, sitting on a hay bale. All our history is there. Me pining, him demurring. We're following our own style, seemingly oblivious to what our peers are doing around us. Young, laughing, and thinking ourselves the cat's pajamas. I still miss him. Kathy, wow. I mean, that is just gut-wrenching and awful. But um, you brought him to life so brilliantly. And I, I, I say this very often, and maybe I'm, people are getting fed up with me saying it, but um, I, I really love it when someone introduces us to someone that we'll never meet and we come away feeling that we have known that person. And I think that is a really gorgeous tribute just to people who've, who've, got, who've left us. So I hope you feel that way or? I do. Um, he did mean a lot to me. Like I said, I, I, I miss him still. You know, my husband laughs about, oh, you're going to talk about that guy. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent so many years in love with him and it got me nowhere. <laughs> oh, Kathy, thanks so much for that incredible story. It was so full of love. Thank you for introducing us to John. And by the way, Kathy was joining us all the way from Whitehead, a few miles north of Belfast, not California. She lives here now, and we won't give her back. And that is it for this podcast. We really do love to hear from you. It really makes my day. So get in touch on social media. That's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com, or via our website, 10by9.com needless to say. Also, you can catch up with all our videos on our YouTube channel. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes, and please, if you can tell as many people as you can about the podcast, 
it is the best way to get noticed. Thanks to the lovely audiences of Zoom, West Belfast and The Black Box and all their lovely staff. And thanks to all our storytellers, but especially Fergal McGuckin, Anya McParland and Cathy Ayres. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.